0: The Bob Murphy Show, episode 190. There's a tidal wave coming. What
1: you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now, here's your host, Bob Murphy.
0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today, my guest is going to be Benjamin Boyce. So some of you may be familiar with him. He is a podcaster with a growing popularity, and he was really on top of all this critical race theory stuff arguably years before it was on other people's radars. So let me go ahead and just read his official bio here. Benjamin is a writer, interviewer, and filmmaker exploring the tides and riptides of politics and culture. His principal body of work is a deep-dive documentary of a brief yet volatile protest at a small liberal arts college, Evergreen State, in 2017. As a student there, he witnessed the escalation of critical theory from a set of virtue signals into a template for the dismantling of critical thought and honest dialogue. He has also built a catalog of in-depth interviews on the subject of gender, showcasing the complexities and nuances of men's and women's experiences as embodied cultured beings. And you can find his work at his YouTube channel, which I will link to, and uh, also at slash. Voice of Reason. And Boyce is B-O-Y-C-E. So again, for all links to all this stuff, just go to BobMurphyShow.com slash 190. What we do in this interview is mostly I have him tell the story of what he saw at Evergreen and just the lessons that we can draw from that. But we also talk about other things too. So if you've heard him talk about his Evergreen stuff before, this won't be completely redundant, but there is going to be a lot of overlap. But also, I do push him and to talking about specific aspects that I haven't heard him mention elsewhere. So I think it's a very fun conversation. I was looking forward to this one because I, I had been watching him with my wife for a while now and I was excited to get him on the show. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Benjamin Boyce. Well, Benjamin, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Hey, thanks,
1: Bob Murphy, for having me on your show.
0: <laughs> so I don't know if this is the thing that you're sick of talking about it or you relish it because it's your area of expertise, but I think we do need to start, please tell people evergreen and, you know, I may stop you and ask for clarification, but if, if you don't mind, I think we need to start with that just because a lot of people still, I'm sure they've heard allusions to it, but they don't really know what it is.
1: Okay. Yeah. I've been thinking about marketing a lot. And one suggestion that I've heard from, you know, one marketing book that I'm reading is that you have to have an origin story. And I don't want, I don't want this as my origin story, but you know, you just take what life gives you and actually mm-hmm. it's actually something very rich that like Do you think me. Bruce Wayne liked his origin story? He didn't choose that, but it was He, he drew upon. upon it to do good in the world, so I guess that's a fair point, you know, with the pearls falling and stuff like that. So the pearls that fell in my uh background were uh, at the age of 36 after a decade and a half working preschool and odd jobs and writing, uh, impossible fictions. I, uh, kind of beached in life and I plateaued and I needed to kind of sink my teeth into something. And I, I had not gone to college and I needed accreditation. I needed to really focus on, you know, a skill that can, I really I'm, I'm sorry. Can I stop
0: work. you even at this early stage? You had been teaching preschool. Yes. Well, yeah, and you didn't as need opposed to have a... to uh,
1: just being in a daycare well, center. Been through, like no, I, pa- I passed
0: it. yeah. you were like, no, I, I I flew through there. I knew where the colors I put the blocks in I was good. no, i am I'm saying, but you were able to do that without having had a college degree or you well,
1: i I started as a uh, what's called an aide. and it's okay. basically,, uh, you know, they just need help. And I was living in Portland, Oregon, and I was tired of doing barista things. And I just on the fly, somebody told me that I'd be good with kids. And on the fly, I just opened the phone book. And the first place that I called didn't answer. The second place hired me. So I just walked in, that dropped in my lap, and it turned out that there was a lot of um, meaningful work that I was able to do, studying and coaching two, Mm. three, four-year-olds and how to be a human. You know, they say that those who can do, those who can't teach. So, I was trying mm-hmm. to figure out what it is to be a human being and learned a lot. Actually, I, it really helped me ground myself in human psychology and uh, basic human, the hydraulics of human behavior, and uh, something that I took to. And it was able to uh, provide enough uh, support for me to work on my creative endeavors being impossible fictions. But I got can really burned you- out. Yeah.
0: About this, it's, I don't know if this is a good interviewing technique or not, but no, yeah. I don't want to lose track of this one because there's like a sort of running debate like are humans naturally good or evil? Hmm. So like you're looking at little kids, are they selfish and self-absorbed or you know what I mean? Is it more they just don't know other people and you got to teach them how to share and think what's your take on that sort of question?
1: It really depends on the individual. I'm going to give an anecdote. It's totally an anecdote, and I have received pushback for saying this on the internet, but it was just something interesting that I saw with one child whose dad was a criminal and whose mom was a really nice uh, woman, very nice woman. His dad was in jail, though, for being a criminal. And this this boy, I don't think he had much exposure to his dad, but he was ultra-violent. He was like somebody had Mm. walked out of... uh, clockwork orange. And I saw that he wasn't evil per se, but he had he was like a tiger. And I had to really work on teaching him to watch his behavior so he could control it because society would not accept him if he allowed himself. So if he saw a rock, he would see it as a weapon. If he saw a stick, he would see it as as a tool to inflict pain. And other kids would see the same tool and maybe they'd whack somebody with it, but his nature, I just saw his nature, was to inflict mm. pain. Um, so he had some sort of sadistic thing, and it was uh, it was very challenging for me. I had to operate with a lot of patience because I don't want to instill anger or shame in him. I want to instill a higher consciousness in him so that he can observe his behavior and manage that so that he can operate functionally in society. But with regards to human beings being selfish, yeah, we we start as... These little lumps that are absolutely need to be tended as though they are the center of the world. I don't know if you have any children, but anybody, yeah, you, you mentioned you had a son. So everybody, yeah, yeah. every human being that undergoes the experience of of parenthood, they see that most vulnerable beginning of the self, and then you watch that self gain more and more awareness of the world, and to help a child manage themselves it takes a lot of patience in the sense of you become the arena in which reality unfolds, and then they slowly gain more and more volition or uh, intentionality. And then intelligence and emotionality are distributed uh, differently across human beings. And some people are more selfish than others, for sure, You know, just naturally in hmm. their natural state. So there's, it's really fascinating to watch just a human being start pre-verbally and watch them right. slowly gain that realm of of language, which we dwell in as adults, but they don't quite. So watching people in, enter into that with, with consciousness, you see that consciousness precedes thought in a way. So there's something that's deeper that precedes the realm of reality that we exist in as adults, which is totally built out of thoughts and argumentation and emotions and power and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. You're right. Because it's, yeah, so I have two sons, one one is older now, but one, yeah, he's 10 months or so. And he's, you're right. Like they're utterly dependent on you. And when they have a problem, they cry. Like it doesn't yeah. occur to them like, oh, maybe, maybe my parents are busy right now. And, and, you know, what they're doing is more important than the fact that I'm hungry. They don't, they don't think <laughs> <Yeah>. like that, <laughs> no. but you don't attribute malice to that. They just don't know any better. And so, but yeah. you're saying with this kid you were talking about, it's not that it didn't occur to him that, oh, it might hurt someone if I hit him. That was the reason why he was hitting them.
1: There was was something where he got pleasure out of watching other people be in pain. It was actually kind of Mm -hmm. terrifying in a way. And not really terrifying. I don't want to overstate the case, but I could see that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's one level. I've worked with several female students who are very good at manipulating on a social level. And you have to teach them to wield their power correctly. Right. They have a power of being able to get what they want out of people by playing with people's language and their emotions. And you have to say, you know, well, if you want to be a princess, you have to act like a princess. Meaning if you want respect, you need to mm-hmm. respect your subjects in a way and establish like kind of a balance You know, so you teach everybody's got these, uh, basically these weapons to survive on the human world. And Mm -hmm. you have to teach them how to do good with these different aspects so that they don't end up creating a bunch of whatever is we call evil. Do you know, like
0: your view about human nature, did it significantly change because of your experience with that job?
1: I don't know if it changed it significantly deepened and it has informed every bit of my work. So when we get mm-hmm. to Evergreen, I spent 15 years teaching children to become adults and then I go to this college mm-hmm. that I watched taught adults to act like children. So if you watch the events of Evergreen 2017, mm-hmm. you see these full-grown 2-year-olds operating under uh, the parameters of 2 and 3-year-olds or I don't want to say this word primitive, but there was a regression from civil culture into a much more Mm -hmm. primal, completely power-based functionality of how that entire event occurred. And because of the ideas that were installed... At the level of the administration and the faculty and just the worldview, it disabled the so-called adults to actually stop the young adults from acting like children. It actually actively mm-hmm. encouraged that behavior.
0: So I I had interrupted you. So you, at first, you were just, you had plateaued. You said, you know what, I got to yeah. do some more of my life. And so that's yeah. why I'm going to go back to school yeah. or, or go to, and did you pick Evergreen because of what it was
1: or just it was convenient Both. It was very convenient. It was just down the road. Mm -hmm. It was very cheap because it was a state school. I was an older person. uh, So there's this Pell Grant thing and it's very easy to get um, support to do that, you know. So it was cheap. It was convenient. But Evergreen, when it was pitched to me and when it began, before it became what it is now or what it was during that month of uh, 2017, it was based on independent learning. There's a high capacity for you to get away with anything, which means that you could totally maximize your experience or completely just coast and do nothing. There there were a lot of um, ways in which it was set up to centralize independent learning, to centralize the independent project, and to craft your own degree, so-called. And whatever you wanted that to be, they would facilitate that. Now, there's also other Can I ask you, Benjamin, do you mean Things like
0: there was no like, oh, to get a major in this, you got to take these prerequisites and then three of these elected. You mean it was more like you got to assemble the the cafeteria style, like I'm going to take all these classes and they were fine with it? Is that what you mean? Or- you do an independent study. You just do a project for the semester and check in with the professor. You could do that too. You could do that too. Okay. So both.
1: If you want a uh, BS, a bachelor's of science, there's uh, requirements to do uh, hard sciences and you need a certain amount of credit in that. And uh, if you want a dual degree, then you do so much science and then so much of the humanities. I was pure humanities which, you know, it's really, really, really subjective. So what I ended up doing was writing a novel, uh, about five novels, and then a major project at the end, which is like this uh, 725-page super book, like this impossible fiction. Like, that's what I went there for. So because of the freedom, Mm -hmm. I had the capacity to do that. But I also did participate in classes. Programs at Evergreen are taught by one or three professors, and it's one program for the entire quarter or for the entire year. Mm -hmm. So the Paragon, um, I don't know if that's the right word, course that I took at Evergreen was called Dark Romantics. And there was a professor of philosophy, of history, of art, and of photography, and of language, and they all taught about the 19th century France. We talked about the French Revolution, we talked Mm -hmm. about, you know, the the history of that era, the literature and philosophy of that era, the art of that era, and then at the final quarter, the spring quarter, we went to France and immersed ourselves in the culture and we all did uh, personal projects based on that, based on Romanticism and and French history and culture and so on and so forth. So there's that, and then there's a lot of uh, student-originated studies or independent work where a uh, faculty acts as though they are the advisor and you bring them their work and you discuss these concepts and then you, you go for it. So I had already spent 15, 20 years writing novels and I really wanted to figure out why they kept on self-destructing. And so I went to Evergreen and I studied literature, mm-hmm. I studied writing, and then I studied how to study those things. I studied criticism and then somehow I was immersed in all this social justice stuff. So evergreen
0: like had a reputation yes. even before you went there that, that oh, like yeah. what people say oh it's really liberal or PC or I didn't I understand that
1: before then I okay. heard kind of rumors that it was but like when I when mm. I stepped on campus in 2013 it was like stepping back to 1993 like with the signage around uh, dismantling patriarchy and people like there was a lot of this crusty feminism and crusty eco living, you know, and this ideal Mm -hmm. that if we stopped using deodorant, the world would be much better place, you know, kind of thing, you know, so it already had that culture. And it felt like it was stuck in time at a previous time. But because of that, it was the perfect place to to incubate these current ideas of political Mm -hmm. correctness that go under the name critical social justice intersectionality and so on and so Mm -hmm. forth anti-racism too
0: so at the time i'm curious were you was it kind of like you were generally on board like oh yeah of course racism's bad and you know sexism and but these people might take it a bit too far but what do i care it was it was that or were you against this stuff from the beginning and just overlooked it
1: um, okay, well, of course racism is bad, but mm-hmm. I had grown up, I'm a Gen Xer, I had grown up taught that we are to judge people based on the content of their character and not the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. I had, through the accident of history, had deeply internalized that racism is a stupid thing, and that it really doesn't tell you anything that the visual aspect of the human being doesn't really make any sense. What you need to understand is who they are. And that was backed up in, mm-hmm. with my time in preschool. I did work mm-hmm. with kind of bougie kids. I worked with low-income kids too. So I had worked you know, across races and, and cultural spectrums. And for sure, there's a socioeconomic disadvantage for children that's pretty hardcore for them. Equal opportunity really is a myth because it really does have to do with your beginning and the family unit that you're born into. And then the amount of stress that that family unit is undergoing due to economic factors really does impact a child. And so I, I can understand how socioeconomic stuff, and I do understand that there's vestiges of racism that have uh, fed into socioeconomic status and vestiges of racism that, stereotype bias and stuff like that. But I spent time in Chicago too. And I saw the great mix. I saw the great cultural soup and I didn't really understand. And I was actually taken aback when I after a couple of years at evergreen i saw this critical social justice stuff really ramp up the professors and the administrators mm-hmm. really ramped it up and i'm watching my professors say that teaching western art and western science and western logic is actually promoting racism and we are as mm-hmm. complicit in white supremacy as any institution in history and i'm i'm watching I'm like this is the least this place is so anti-racist that it's racist now, and right, you guys right. are comparing yourselves literally to the Nazis, but it's it just – it's so – I was just taken aback by the rhetoric going. I'm like, do you really think mm. that we should start judging people based on their – color of their skin, do you really think that sexual identity is like the foundational principle of somebody's individualism? Like I've worked with kids where mm-hmm. you obviously know that they're homosexual, right? But that has nothing to do other than like some, you know, like it informs their personality, but that doesn't inform who they actually are, you know, which is a weird statement. I should probably roll that back, but you can tell that one's sexual orientation, one's uh, Expression of the masculine and feminine are a mixture, and there is a spectrum. But that isn't necessary. You can't really judge a person if you Mm. base your judgment on that. And so I just kept on coming back to my first principles, which are informed by Christianity pretty heavily, due to my uh, my father being a pastor and growing up in the church. I always understand that there's a divine essence to a human being. And mm-hmm. that essence is given to them by their creator. And if I can contact with that part of that human being, we all are equal in the eyes of God. Now, we're not equal in all these other ways. But primordially, mm-hmm. from the very beginning, I am really, if I'm better than you or worse than you, subjectively, like that's a very, that's such a small difference in the grand scheme of things, right? And Under the mm-hmm. eyes of the mm-hmm. supreme being. My job, if I am smarter than you, is to lend you my intelligence. And your job, if you're stronger than me, is to lend you my strength. And then we do a transaction and we build a better society. But I saw... The racism and the sexism, like constantly, constantly, the white male was bashed and mocked constantly. Mm. And you were expected to to apologize for being cis and being hetero and being this and being that. Mm. And it was assumed that you had all this power in the world and that you needed to dissenter yourself, which just didn't make any sense to me being in the world for 16 years and understanding that actually it's hard work that gets you ahead. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter how much you have. It matters what you make of it, which again is, I believe, a Christian parable. Jesus talked about that, like the person with the the least talent ends up burying the talent, which is a complete waste, even if you have barely anything, if you invest that, if you work right. on it, that's where your quality is, is what you mm-hmm. do with what you have, not what you are. And I saw that, that worldview be implemented. And then I saw that directly start to influence the mindset and the behavior of the young people who implemented that, who don't have the gloss of being a professor or the gloss of being a professional to keep them so-called in line. The students took those ideas and started to foment revolution and started to bully one another. And then, and then you have the, the actual Evergreen protest in 2017.
0: And before we get into that, I do want to just ask you, so you raised a number of interesting things there. So the one thing I yeah. have thought, just knowing your story is, and I'm I'm wondering if if you agree with this, the fact that you went there as an adult, like, I mean, we can call them young adults, but you were much older and you were grounded in your own identity. So you could more readily just
1: reject- I had taken plenty of licks in life to have learned some lessons.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and so like their indoctrination kind of bounced off of you, whereas somebody who's 18 and going to college for the first time and hearing that might internalize it more. Or do you think that that's not- the case. Am I putting too much weight on that?
1: No, I think that that's part of the case. But also there was a lot of older students going there with me who totally bought into it. And, and okay. even though we were, I had friends where we would make fun of this stuff. And by the end of it, they're like anti-racist. They're just doing that whole anti-racist thing where black people need to be put on a pedestal because they are inherently oppressed. And I'm inherently obligated to basically bow down to them and wash their feet, you know, intellectually. Mm-hmm. But 2020 made literal 2020 and 2017 at Evergreen. What happened at 2017 at Evergreen made literal—it said the silent part out loud. 2020 said the silent part out loud of what this thing called anti-racism is. Now, my anti-racism is the Martin Luther King Jr. right mm-hmm. anti-racism. But that anti-racism is now cast as racist. And Washington state government is now implementing this where you are supposed to see the color of the skin and judge people based on their skin color first and foremost, so mm-hmm. you can help them, right? So ostensibly, so you can lift these people up, you need to put them down first. You, know, you need to condescend right. so that, that they can transcend, right. it, which just it's like there's some problems there for me.
0: I, just on that point, I don't know if, if, if this is something that you thought or that you noticed or maybe it wasn't true, and I just imagined it. But this past Martin Luther King Day, hmm. I swear that on Twitter, like lots of accounts, like I saw barely any mention of it. Hmm. And I, and except, and the only people I did did see mentioning, like quoting from him, were people from the right. Hmm. And I think that is because it's almost awkward at this point. If you've been pushing like what today they mean by anti-racism, the quotes from Martin Luther King are like anathema to their whole worldview. And so I think they kind of just, or if anything, they get mad. I saw people saying stuff like. Yeah, those of you quoting Dr. King, you're the same people that shot him, like that kind of stuff. Yeah, like you have no yeah. right to quote from him because you're just trying to use him as a cudgel against us.
1: There's one quote that they use a lot from Martin Luther King. And it's from uh, the letter from a Birmingham jail where he calls out white liberals they'll mm-hmm. use the quotes where he's bashing white people. They're totally okay. fine using okay. <laughs> that mm-hmm. and then like enforcing people to say, oh, you think that you're liberal? Well, you're not progressive and you get the bullet first, mm-hmm. which is actually Evergreen shows you that the liberals
0: get the yeah. bullet first. So can you just go ahead and, and again, for those who didn't know is when you, you, okay. you mentioned the protest. So what? what's the big thing? And you know, I know Brett Weinstein yeah. talks about this. So what Where did this all, you know, you're in class, you see this stuff building, but then what actually happened when it blew up? So this
1: guy named Donald J. Trump gets elected to high office in the United States. And from the point of view of Evergreen, he's probably literally worse than Hitler. Mm -hmm. That's their attitude towards him. And the day after that election, I go on campus and everybody's morbidly Just depressed and people are crying, Mm. walking around and classes are canceled and everybody Mm. goes out onto the quad, which is called the red square. And, uh, they have this, uh, kind of get together. And I finally found footage. It's in episode 10 of my complete evergreen story, which is the documentary where I take all of the video footage Before the protest from the actual administration and the teachers and all those programs and of the protest and post-protest. I'm working on the post-protest stuff, but I'm kind of stalled right there. But you can see the whole thing in the complete Evergreen story if you guys really want to understand. (laughs) So Trump gets elected. The students freak out and the faculty freak out. And then a week later, they have this – they introduce their equity plan that they've been working on Mm. for eight months. And I am on camera – which means that I'm manning – well, you're not supposed to say manning uh, at Evergreen, actually. <laughs> it's it, it's it's sexist to say that. So I am – You're operating? I'm opera. yeah, thank you. I'm operating the camera. There's three cameras. I'm on one. And I'm watching this thing unfold, and it starts out with this song – and then it starts out with all of these personal testimonies about this equity plan and how hard it was and how they argued with each other and threw chairs at each other because this work is so important and it's time for us to change the world right now. And and with, with what's coming down the pipes on the federal level, now is the time to lift up these students based on their race and look at the data. And the data actually doesn't support their point at all. Mm-hmm. The data actually shows that it's, uh, well, among the uh, populations, that are being underserved and that are dropping out according to their metrics of what they want to do, the poor white male is among the highest risk student. Mm-hmm. But that, uh, no, no, it's all, about, it's all about a very certain race. And I have, I have an extended leaked phone call where the head of statistics, it says explicitly that they took the data and they massaged it to get what they wanted out of it. But during this ceremony, which is called the canoe meeting, for good mm-hmm. reason, they don't bring up the data at all. They say, this is we're going to play the believing game. And you don't, don't question. You have to put yourself in the position. And, and you need to get on board. And if you start rocking the boat, we're going to push you out of the way. And I have Brett Weinstein, who I did not know until after the protest. Mm-hmm. He's, he's in the room, another professor that I know pretty well now, post-protest. They're in the room, and I'm in the room. And I'm like, this is the worst Church service I have ever been in, and it's nothing but a church service, and mm. they don't even know how to do that right. And at the end of the <laughs> freaking ceremony, they're like, "We're going to get in a canoe." So they appropriate this native ceremony. They get in the canoe, but they everybody has to say why they're getting in the canoe. It's
0: in like a like a classroom auditorium type room. Is it? That- it's in the amphitheater,
1: uh, okay, or whatever it's called. Yeah, this auditorium. Yeah, for sure. And uh, there's a,
0: a canoe on dry ground sitting up there?
1: No, they they pretend. (laughs) Okay. You have to watch this footage. So they're going to make a row. They make like this imaginary canoe and everybody has to say why they're there. And all of the administrators have to apologize. And they all say that they don't deserve, we're going to be in the back of the canoe. We're going to help these students that are so oppressed and we're going to do this. And it's just, there's, it's not an academic thing at all. And Everybody gets in a canoe and I'm looking around during this whole thing. I'm like, this like, is a presentation of the administration to the student body. This is a presentation is? of the equity council, so-called to uh-huh. the entire campus to show okay, that okay. we are now about equity. We are about okay, okay. this mm-hmm. what they call social justice. Right. But they don't talk about how they're going to do it. But if you actually look at the document, they want to be in charge of hiring. They want to be charged charge of promotion. And that's where Brett Weinstein starts to get in trouble. He mm-hmm. gets in trouble before that. But he starts to start questioning, well, how much power do they get these people have? How, how is this actually going to work out in reality? Mm-hmm. But before that, they all walk out in this canoe I'm filming the whole thing. They all go out, everybody's somber and like in this kind of weird trance state. And then I didn't follow them, but I heard from a student where they, they go to the longhouse, which is this native American building where the Native American you know, students go, and the, the, there's a lot of classes about public administration for the Native communities. Evergreen does do a lot of work positively for the Native uh, the tribes in, in the area. They all go to that place. They have the black students stand in the middle, the white students stand around the black students, and then all the teachers stand around, and they all start singing songs. They all start singing songs about you know kumbaya and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I, I think that that's very, very important because they basically summoned what happened. They created, they crafted a ritual that implemented a racial hierarchy, Mm -hmm. ostensibly to flip or to destroy a racial hierarchy. And then they set up a community order. They concretized that framework in their head. That was the way. So that makes sense of a lot of the documents, the internal emails about how any sort of questioning was treated. You were basically a heretic if you questioned the actual document, the actual how the, the outcomes of equity would actually affect the campus and like all, all levels of the campus. So that was in November. I think it was sixteenth of uh, twenty sixteen, and okay. So so that wasn't that had been in the works. That it
0: wasn't the Trump's election caused that. That thing was already. Even back when they thought Hillary was going to win for sure, they were doing that,
1: planning that. They were planning that. When George Bridges in 2015 comes on, he says that the civil rights era has done a lot of work to forward uh, racial equity. But now is the time for us to do the real work, and we're nowhere close to the finish line. And he implements – so they've been implementing this anti-racist education. They have Robin D'Angelo show up, author of White Fragility, yeah. and she is a complete cult leader. She never debates anybody – she stands at the podium, and she has the divine knowledge, and she gives that to everybody else, right? So they have mm-hmm. one orientation, one seminar, one lecture after the other without debate. So what they, one misstep that they did was that they lost their heterodox principles. They lost critical thinking. They lost good faith debate way before that. Mm-hmm. Trump's election hits and mobilizes an emotional level on the students, and the students start to protest over and over and over again, interrupting all these different activities, calling the institution that's teaching them that all institutions racist, racist. Mm-hmm. So they think that Evergreen's the most racist thing because Evergreen thinks it's the most racist thing right, because right, right, of right. this thing called whiteness. And so they they start eating themselves and chopping off it. So on an administrative level, they've empowered this equity mindset. The faculty are now fighting amongst each other and starting to witch hunt each other Mm -hmm. and denigrate one another. To mitigates or questions this sacred doctrine, which is not based on fact. It's based on this social justice ideal. And then the students are on the lower tier starting to be agitated more and more and more. Mm -hmm. And because they think that Trump is literally Hitler, they think that now concentration camps are going to be set up. They literally think concentration camps are going to be set up, that people are going to go be torn from their families. And they use that (laughs) Obama-era immigrant policy to prove that Trump is the back, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, kids in cages and all that stuff, which are no longer kids in cages. They're enhanced, uh, what are they called? Like some sort of enhanced extended uh, residential facilities, right?
0: Yeah, I I know, I can't think of it, but yeah, I I saw the headlines and how they, it seems a bit different. Yeah. And you could have pointed out, no, the last time we had concentration camps was FDR. We're fine, you know.
1: Yeah. (laughs) But. Yeah, which is ironically a progressive guy, Mm -hmm. Right, right. So. Then the faculty have this harebrained idea, harebrained idea. They did not think about optics at, at all. Every year, the well, up until this happens, every year this college has a day of absence, day of presence, which is uh, based on this Douglas Turner Ward play called Day of Absence, where in this Southern town, so a lot of the racial rhetoric that's going on in this tiny college in Pacific Northwest is drawing heavily on racial relations in the South that they don't actually have any direct experience of. They have this image, this cartoon image from the 50s of how race works out, Mm -hmm. and they're importing that. I have videos of them importing and instilling into the students. They'll show pictures of 1958, 1957 of Black students being yelled at, of Black black people being chased by dogs. And they literally say, administrators say, this is still happening. It's just passive aggressive. This system is still doing the same thing to you. It's just hidden within all of this white liberal language, but Mm -hmm. it's the same thing. They're importing the urgency of the civil rights into this modern day period. And then they're decoupling that sense of urgency and that sense of justice from actuality by saying that it's all implicit and systemic now. You can't see it, but it's still there. And the students are internalizing that all these systems are inherently oppressive, and then all people are inherently biased, especially white people. All white people, by default, Mm -hmm. hate everybody else. By default, you're racist. You can't get away from your privilege. You're anchored in that. So what they want to do in this uh, Douglas Turner war, you know, they, they, so every year they have this day of absence where the students of color, so-called, they go off campus for a day to show to the rest of the campus how integral they are, how, how diversity is so integral to the white normal people. And okay. then after they voluntarily absent themselves from the campus, they come back and then there's this day of presence and there's this celebration of diversity. Now, that's been happening since uh, 1970s. Over the course of the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the aughts and the tens, this progressive rhetoric starts to creep in that it's no longer about celebration of difference. It's all about oppression and oppressed dynamics. And the tonality of the Day of Presence and the Day of Absence is that white people are villainized and people of color are the victims. And even within those so-called people of color, there are gradations of oppressors, right? So Jewish people are complicit in white supremacy. Asian people are complicit in white supremacy. Basically, everybody that's high-functioning Mm -hmm. on a a statistical level, is high-functioning because they bought into this oppressive system. So merit is not – there's no such thing as merit. There's only some sort of divine – you're just bequeathed this history. And in the footage, you can see that they call themselves bodies, black bodies, white bodies, because they no longer have agency. Everybody's reduced into basically a chess piece in this cosmic – game of pool. They're no longer acting according to their own volition. They have no self-respect, no self-reflection. They are on the side of justice, and they are part of this force that's going to change the Mm. world. And that's why they act with such abandon on film. They think that they're correct. They don't think that they're individuals anymore. They're a part of just this social phenomenon. Mm. So, I'm glad
0: you mentioned that because I I have noticed just that that talking about and look at you know the police last year killed this many black bodies lies, yeah like it's this yeah. thing black people they say black and I, and I, yeah. I, I it's like I'm trying to put my finger on what are they yeah. doing with that and that okay yeah so one thing is it takes away agency agency yeah yeah okay yeah
1: so you're no okay. longer responsible uh, and okay. and you're no you're you're completely culpable though but you're no longer responsible mm-hmm. in, in a way so for some reason the the faculty decided to have white people leave and they phrased it like you're going to require to leave campus if you're white because we want to center the campus on people of color. There's this really uh, short video where they, they do this advertisement of the, of the day of absence. And mm-hmm. they're like, they're trying to explain why right. they do it. And, and you, you see them like trying to justify themselves and like, and then snapping back into, because we want to center black people on the campus and stuff like that. So where they're coming from is, wait a minute,
0: for decades, we've been having the color, people of colors or yeah, people of color, students, yes, it's probably leaving. That. But why would we do that? It's the white people that are the problem, so they yeah. should be
1: the ones leaving. Is that kind of? <laughs> it's kind of what happens. They <laughs> yeah, don't think okay. it through. They don't think how people will see this. Okay. And in fact, they say that the argument is that nobody was required to leave. Mm-hmm. I have documents saying that teachers were requiring students to participate. Mm-hmm. It was... Basically, in certain classes, credit depended on you segregating yourself according to race. Mm -hmm. One class, the white people were led off campus to the forest and had to take a class under a tarp in the rain learning about their white supremacy, right? So the weasels tried to apologize. It wasn't nobody, blah, 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 blah. blah, But, and then also the things- Well, well, you were were were
0: a white student there at the time. I mean, you certainly felt like- if I know
1: what's good for me, I'm going to go ahead and go along with this? Well, again, I had... Because the stuff was so ridiculous, I, I couldn't really participate. So I just did my own thing. By that point, that was my mm-hmm. final year. I was completely mm-hmm. doing independent work at that point. I had one okay. really crazy class that was just a part-time class, but I was you know spending six hours a day writing mm-hmm. and then working on the campus and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm not asking if you actually
0: did it, but I'm just saying you got the vibe. like You knew you were expected to do that, and you just said, I'm not going along with it.
1: At the same time, there was an ideology that you would – have to deal with a bunch of stress if you questioned. Mm -hmm. You would have to put up with a whole bunch of ridicule or argumentation if you didn't declare your pronouns, if you didn't declare your privilege. And there were certain ways in which I resisted, but there's only so much energy that I was willing to put into that Mm -hmm. when I was there Mm -hmm. not to play that game. I was there to do some work. So But but it was very, very thick. Mm -hmm. Brett Weinstein, he writes this letter, that says that it's one thing for a group to absent themselves. It's another for the institution. It's another thing entirely for the institution to segregate people and say that you need to leave based on your race. And he said that I'm going to protest that. Mm-hmm. Now, his emails about that canoe meeting had been published in the Cooper Point Journal, which is the student newspaper. His emails about that, about protesting, were published in the Cooper Point Journal. The day of absence comes and goes. And nothing really happens, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it was never that big of a deal, but like it just kind of implemented, it was just another implementation of this coercive ideology. It wasn't totally coercive. Then in May, things get weird. Uh, So these people are young, right? I don't know if you remember being young and Mm -hmm. it's rainy, rainy time. And I'm sorry, we're probably the same age and I'm not being ageist here. I'm just saying that like, they're filled, They're hopped up on energy. Mm-hmm. They're, they've are they been under lock and key, like under this Northwest rain for months and months right. and months. Right, right. The spring comes, there's a lot of that youthful energy ready to break out. Mm-hmm. Exactly like 2020. Everybody goes into lockdown. That energy just starts cooking and cooking and cooking. And then there's finally, right, right. there's that little valve and it explodes. And mm-hmm. the little valve at Evergreen and in every single instance of this wild... Um, protests that go too far break out there's always this one incident that's not accurately represented but it has the correct qualities to draw upon this movement of uh, of justice or of this mm-hmm. it unlocks everybody into okay now it's time to protest there is an entire generation that is trained like dogs to react in a Pavlovian manner to certain incidents, where, whether it's a poop swastika on the wall. And I think that was the University of Wisconsin or Michigan. I can't remember now. Or, you know, like somebody writes the N-word on a toilet, which happened at DuPont University in uh, Ohio, I believe. But I, I've studied, since Evergreen, I've studied these protests over and over and over again. And then in 2020, there's that one incident that's not accurately represented, but it looks like oppression, mm-hmm. specifically police violence. Or some sort of like cultural violence against specifically black bodies. Mm -hmm. The black lamb is sacrificed and that initiates the entire ritual. And it's totally a ritual. Mm -hmm. They they all operate according to this pre-programmed thing. And it's not necessarily intentional, but... In protest after protest after protest, they all start acting out this morality play. It's very similar. It's very boilerplate. Mm-hmm. And it's also boilerplate what happens after that with the administration coming in, implementing all this diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff, and then going along and indoctrinating the entire society, which is what happened at Evergreen in the wake of the protest. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself.
0: So spring of 2017? Yeah. Is when, so what what was the spark? What was the thing that maybe was missed Okay. Mischaracterized this it, set it everything
1: It's so stupid. <laughs> it's, okay. So from the outside view, people think that it's all about Brett Weinstein and this day of absence. It had nothing to do with that. Mm. And even the students who protested Brett Weinstein were like, he was just the first step. We were just gonna go after him and then go after everybody. Like he was just right, right. but he had the, mm. the termidity just getting to warmed stand up. up for himself, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> to say, wait, no, I'm not racist. How dare he like not go right, along with it. Right. So he was mm. the he was the fly in the ointment, but What happened was that one student who's a key character in the actual protests and a student of a key professor called Naima Lowe. Naima Lowe is like the... If you really boil this down into a cartoon, Brett Weinstein's uh, standing for liberal ideals, and then uh, Naima Lowe's standing for this intersectional social justice, critical social justice ideals. Mm-hmm. And they're very iconic figures, and I don't want to get too into that. You have to watch the footage, because mm-hmm. it will sound like I'm being pretty rude if I just accurately describe Naima right, Lo. Okay. But Naima Lowe is pretty intense. She's a media professor, and she... I've heard oh, so she's reports. a professor.
0: I thought she I thought she was a student. She's a professor too.
1: Okay, so okay. Lo is a professor of media and she there's footage of her she teaches this thing about white people being bad mm-hmm. and black people being uh, affected by black stuff and I, that that's just in her lectures it's just right there over and over right, and over right. again. You're not putting she words has, in her mouth. Yeah. No, I'm not. And actually uh, if you look at episode 15 mm-hmm. I I do uh, I do a parody of the uh, In the episode 15 of the complete Evergreen story, I do a a version of the documentary as though I was a student of Naima Lowe. So it's all experimental footage and found footage. It's the college experimental film about an experimental college professor of media, and it shows both the style and the content of her belief system. And I try to really capture the entire aesthetic of what she's going for, but. She's teaching these classes where I have heard from other professors of Evergreen that she's teaching 16 credits of hate. Mm-hmm. She's indoctrinating students into this oppressor-oppressed ideology and this overthrowing of this system. One of her students wants to have an all-people-of-color class. So he puts out on the Facebook 2020, ironic, right, the Facebook, uh, the, the Facebook class of 2020 Evergreen page, we want to have all these, uh, you know, People of color show up so we can, in this media course, so we can show how people of color are misrepresented in films and, like, have solidarity. Another student who's uh, actually Native American and Puerto Rican and white, so a student of color, Mm -hmm. he does a parody of that. And he says, hey, white students, we need to have an all-white class to show how Mm -hmm. white people are not being represented correctly in this thing. And that is taken as racist. He's being completely racist. and he's mm. dogpiled on the Facebook page. And then the students start having unrest, and there's all this tension and they're like cussing at each other and calling each mm. other racist and bad people. You're evil, you're white or you're white. You want to be white. You know, your mother should mm. beat you and stuff like that, to Keave, who's the student of uh, the the student of color, who's the wrong, in his head, he's the wrong color, right? In his head, he's mm-hmm. white, right? But this other student, Jamil and, and Tomiko, these other two students of color, they confront Keave. And Tomiko co- confronts Keave in the cafeteria and threatens him to change his attitude, to change his behavior, and to apologize and to stop acting that way. And is really threatening, according to the story that Keave gives. Very threatening. Kiavi thinks, okay, well, I've been threatened and threatened and threatened. I'm going to go make a report to the campus police. Mm-hmm. So Kiavi goes over to the campus police and tells them the incident. The campus police then try to contact Tomiko, student of color, to give his side of the story, which is due process. Right? There's mm-hmm. a thing called due process. Let's get both sides of the story, do a proper investigation, have it all down on the books, and then sort out what we need to do. Right? That's college procedure. Sure. Tomiko doesn't have his contact information, just his mother's. So the campus police call Tamiko's mother, which is a big no-no for police to contact a black woman's mom. Like it's a complete violation because that sends all this shock into, and this is the story that they tell afterwards. That created a whole bunch of trauma because that means that her son is probably dead. If a if a, if the cops oh, call, okay, right? right.
0: Mm-hmm. So they were is coming from their privilege. Yeah. Not to realize they would, that they would, you should they have would, known what this would do. Because you've yeah. grown up, if police called your mom, she'd be like, oh, what, did you, did he pick them up for jaywalking or? Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the police call Tomiko's mom. Tomiko's mom hangs up, then calls Tomiko. Tomiko calls, uh, finally gets in contact with the police. And the police asked, do you want to come over and give a statement? Mm-hmm. And Tomiko says, yeah, I'll come over. Tomiko gets his friend and his friend gets their friend, and they, all the students get together to walk and to escort Tomiko over to the campus police so he'll be safe and he'll be surrounded by a support, you know, so mm-hmm. when the police, uh, you know, tie him up... that Because they, in their view, the
0: all. system's about to drop the hammer on them, yeah. as it always does. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: And then in RA or in RD, a residential director, so in the dorms, there's these people who have, you know, who are there to help the students. A residential director offers to go with Tomiko so he has somebody from the administration that's on his side that can Mm -hmm. that can be there and, and provide extra oversight. Tomiko accepts that. The story that goes out on social media is that the cops have now extracted a student of color from their dorm in the middle of the night and now are detaining that student of color. That is what they say that night as they're walking over Mm -hmm. there of their own volition, of their own will. Mm -hmm. They go over there. The police say, you don't have to give this statement. This is totally voluntary. We're just looking for it. And that is taken as they are detained. Mm -hmm. There is one restroom in police services, but it's next to the servers. And because of state law, nobody can go back there. There's all these servers with all this really sensitive information there. So there's no bathroom available in that place. The students say that they are being detained against their will in the middle of their night and not allowed to even pee. That goes out on social media. More and more people start swarming the police. Mm -hmm. And then Tomiko gives his statement and they all go home. But this narrative's created that this is exactly proof that Evergreen is systemically anti-black. They've targeted a black person. The black body was detained against their will for a non-crime. And this goes against uh, around social media and the students start fomenting and they spend a week doing all these meetings and uh, and planning. They start to plan this protest and they're like, okay, well, so, and somebody says, okay, we're, we're complaining, but we need to do something. We need to do something. So they form a do shit committee Mm -hmm. Uh, literally that's what they call it and Mm -hmm. they're like okay so they they map out this week of protest and they see that brett weinstein has written all these emails so like okay on tuesday at 9 30 we're going to go over and protest this racist professor and then we're going to go over and protest this event and this event and this event and this event event. Mm -hmm. so that's what initiate that's the build-up to this uh this thing and i don't know to what extent you want me to tell the entire story But that's kind of like, that's the background. Mm -hmm. They show up at Brett's. They're streaming this live on Facebook with all these cameras. And Brett's saying, I'm not racist. Let's have a dialogue. Let's have a dialogue. And they shut him down and they shut him down. And it's just, it's fascinating footage. Mm -hmm. Somebody thinks that Brett's being detained. So they call the campus police. The campus police doing their job, come over to investigate what's going on. The students rush the campus police and there's footage uh, where the black people are saying white people white people protect us put your bodies in front of the black bodies and the white people go to you know wrestle the police you're not supposed to do that and they they have like this kind of the standoff and then the white students uh, and then they figure out that the police aren't, don't care about them. The police only care about getting to Brett. So the, the protesters kind of walk over and they're all jazzed up. They're mm-hmm. like, okay, let's go over. And, uh, what are we going to do now? We have to keep on doing. So they go over and then they, they go to the administration building and they start yelling at everybody in the administration building. And then they have this, Then then they start this whole struggle session where everybody's, confronting this racist system and they're going to overthrow it. And President Bridges is there and the entire administration's there. And they come out with a statement that they put on social media that lies about the entire thing. That Brett Weinstein was assaulting them and degrading their experience. When If you look at the uh, footage, it's the exact opposite. That the police showed up with mace. They say that. Mm -hmm. The police were macing us. They yell. Mm-hmm. During this uh, session with the administration, and George Bridges, the president says, Wait, they maced you? And then they say, No, you're not listening to us. They had mace. You're not listening to our actual experience. You're listening to Mm -hmm. something else. So the whole thing is unmoored from reality. The emotionality is not in tune with any sort of actuality. And then this lens of narrative, they build up and they shoot it into the internet. It gets picked up by afropunk.com and it starts spreading on this internet level. Brett Weinstein is connected with Eric Weinstein, who's pretty involved in this Twitter discourse. And the entire thing goes, it goes meta. It goes from Mm -hmm. this thing that doesn't actually make Sense on an actual level to this social media lens, and then this to this meta lens, and the whole thing just explodes from there. And then the next day is when they take over the library building, and they actually detain and take hostages, and are you know monitoring who can come and go from the campus, and they're live streaming this whole thing. And President Bridges is warned to just shut the campus for a day by the police chief Stacey Brown, and he's like, "No, I have it under control. I have it under control. I have it under control." So. That's kind of like the sample. I have the mm-hmm. whole thing on film if okay. you guys want it. Yeah. I should let you guys okay, watch great. the
0: rest. Yeah. And and folks, we're this is bobmurphyshow.com slash one ninety. I'll give links to everything that Benjamin has has done on this so you can see more. But but thank you. Yeah. So that that's good. Um, so I guess the obvious follow-up to that, and then we can talk about other things, is <laughs> was it weird for you like to see it happening on that campus? And then in a sense, did you feel like Cassandra? Like and then you just saw it happening to the country as a whole? <laughs> later and you are powerless to stop it and you're yelling in the void or? Oh, geez.
1: I saw the buildup and I actually, in 2015, when they started doing these illiberal training sessions, I wrote to the president and I wrote to the campus. I'm like, you guys are going down the wrong path. Mm -hmm. Once we stop judging people based on individuals, once we stop seeing individuals, it's havoc. Like we will no longer be able to see each other as human beings. Therefore, we will no longer act as human beings. And then I saw protest after protest leading up to that where the where the unhingedness, just the crazy behavior of the students, it totally offended me. And mm-hmm. I wrote about that. I complained about that. I'm like, you guys are teaching them about privilege and oppression, but there's no etiquette. So empowerment without etiquette is just a license to be a tyrant. Mm-hmm. You guys have created a generation of tyrants. And I'm saying this, and I'm saying this, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. And so the whole thing blows up all this footage shoots out in the internet. All these YouTubers take that and like show like this crazy evergreen college. This is crazy. But I'm like, you guys don't understand. This was taught to them. I have footage. I have receipts of this being taught. So I started uploading... All of the footage and all of the emails that I could find, and being there, and it's being a state institution, I had the uh, freedom to request the information and, and to to leak those mm. things. So I was the Snowden of the Mosses, as I like to say in my more proud <laughs> moments. But my first video was not about denigrating the students or the professors, but just to say mm. that this ideology looks at human beings as integers of a it's an inhuman way of looking at humanity. That's the input. The output is Mm -hmm. in human behavior. And and I talked about preschool. I talked about please and thank you. About teaching Mm -hmm. a child please and thank you is not just a rote. It's not just this rote thing that you do for politeness. This is to say please to that preschool teacher that's giving you the milk forces you to recognize that they're a human being just like you. Mm -hmm. And to say thank you is to thank them for offering you their self and then you participating in a human exchange. It's not just about getting what you want. It's about being a part of a bunch of humans that are doing that. And I made that argument and I stick to that. I stick to that principle, which I think is based on kind of a Christian understanding that is been upgraded into a certain form of liberalism, which just sees anybody regardless of their belief as individuals first, but evergreen did something opposite. Folks, let's take a break from the discussion to
0: remember that Nobel laureate economist who has a column the New York Times. That's right. It's our good friend, Paul Krugman. Believe it or not, Krugman has not reformed his ways. Arguably, he's become worse since Tom Woods and I discontinued our famous podcast critiquing Krugman first weekly and then biweekly. But you know what? You can still recapture some of that zeal for truth and skewering that you came to love when you listen to the podcast if you go get the book Contra Krugman. And to be clear, it's not a transcript of those episodes. These are columns that I wrote over many years critiquing Krugman, and there's a whole list of different subject areas. It's not just Keynesian economics, it's also climate change, all sorts of stuff is in this book. In fact, when I read the initial manuscript, you know, looking for typos and stuff like that, when I was done, I I just thought, you know, should we just hang up the show here because what more needs to be said? I almost felt bad for him. It was, it was pretty brutal. And uh, at this point we have stopped the show. So maybe it was prophetic. To get your hands on this book, go to ContraKrugmanBook.com. I think you're going to like it. What's interesting to me is, I mean, there's lots of different problems with that. We talked about how it flies in the face of, you know, Martin Luther King, but also her name escapes me. But do you know that famous experiment where the the lady went into the kids and like the kids with the brown yeah. brown eyes versus blue eyes or I'm botching the details but yeah I can't like, that's supposed to be name. a standard thing and yet isn't that what they're doing here like isn't that they created tribal no therefore We're, they right.
1: created a tribal dynamic which is all war it's all power it's all war and so when 2020 happened like I, I went into post-traumatic stress For Mm. like a month. I'm like, no, no, they said it wasn't going to go viral. And I'm like, I knew it was going to happen. But But that's that's what I'm
0: wondering. Like, did you feel like you just saw it morphing and it went from that campus to then the whole country and you were powerless to stop it and you could see it and other people couldn't see it or?
1: Well, what I try to say with regards to Evergreen is that there's the surface event that's like watching a, a train wreck in slow motion, Mm -hmm. and it's like a very fascinating experience. It's enraging and stuff. But the real story is what happens after that protest, is that the administrators of this institution clamp down on free speech. They clamp down on argumentation, and they say that now is the time for us to dedicate ourselves to this thing that they called social justice. So we need to do trainings, and everybody needs to watch their words. And offense becomes the primary monetary system of mitigating all social interactions is a fence. Mm-hmm. Everything's based on offense. Everything's based on oppression. Everything's based on mitigating oppression for the most oppressed. It's no longer about uh, conveying knowledge. And so the problem with what happened in 2020 wasn't the $2 billion of damage that were enacted by the protesters and completely covered up by a media and uh, all the leadership, the democratic leadership in those states and, and, and played down and allowed to happen. For mm-hmm. political ends, it was the political ends themselves, which wasn't necessarily an election. It's not necessarily like that. They used those protests to destabilize the country and blame that on Trump. And then Biden's going to come in, and we're having this peaceful moment of solace. Now uh, we're no longer in the crazy time. We're under normality. We're back to normal. You can stop thinking about government. Mm-hmm. You can stop thinking about you know politics. Now you can just go back to your regular life. Yeah. Okay. Joe Biden's much more chill than Trump, but within hours of coming into power, he signs this executive order, two executive orders principally that start to play around with language about how the federal government treats people. And that executive order, one, he completely killed banning racial stereotyping in government trainings, which is the anti-CRT bill that Trump Mm -hmm. initiated, where you can't judge people based on their skin and you can't say that you're evil and you can't teach that America is founded on evil ideas. Like that was the things that were banned, among other things. Mm-hmm. That, that's that gone. So they can teach that now. Right, and then we're right. going to start to move towards equity, which is equality for all, they say, including, and then they make this progressive stack list of identities. So they're starting to implement a color-obsessed view of individuals within the federal apparatus. And so, like I've said before, Evergreen State College and this entire ideology, it starts by saying... Being colorblind isn't sufficient because you can't see race. We need to see race because that's a actual a functional reality in life. So they they start seeing race, and then they become unable to see anything but race. They go from colorblind to color-obsessed. Mm-hmm. That's the trajectory of this. So Biden's EO is pretty passe, but it's going to initiate within the federal government, and then corporations will follow suit, this entire ream of indoctrination, uh, this complete code of behavior that on the surface— On the very first surface, it says it's for inclusion, diversity, et cetera, all these glorious ideals. On the second level, it's that we will see if you can get along with this stuff. And then on the third level, it's like we will weed out people who aren't able to think according to what we want to think. It's a great tool to strain out independent thinkers. Ultimately, aside from how racist and sexist it is, it's perfectly attuned to completely quash dissent and then marginalize the most Oppressed of all groups, which is the individual, the individual mm-hmm. thinker.
0: Let me, if you don't mind, Benjamin, let me throw a devil's advocate question. Yeah, please. Suppose somebody, you know, listen to this and says, okay, yeah, sure. You you guys are right. You know, Murphy and Boyce here, you're, the stuff you're talking about, yeah, they shouldn't have done it. It was wrong, whatever. But in the grand scheme, you know, George W. Bush invaded a country mm-hmm. on the basis of falsehoods. Yeah. You know, they had a global network of secret torture prisons and stuff where they are black bagging people and taking yeah. millions of black fathers are locked up for yeah. nonviolent offenses. Dah, 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 dah. And you guys are focused on because the language they use and somebody at Coke has to go get training that yeah. might make them feel bad about their. Give me a break. know, How would you respond to something like that?
1: Yeah. Or, you know. As a white man, you haven't experienced 400 years of oppression, and now you're just trying to defend yourself from being oppressed in your turn. Anything like that. What essentially will happen when we divide each other based on our race and start to obsess about, you know, let's say a form of reparations, not monetary, it's a moral reparation, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, we're going to get back to you. You're going to pay us back in moral obsequiousness and behavior Mm -hmm. and bowing down Mm -hmm. to these ideals will fracture us as a as a whole, as a community, I don't think we can stand. It will, it will create a hierarchy that's unstable because it's not based on anything that's meritocratic, right? So the people that actually take advantage of this are people who don't care if they're uh, cheating, which is it's cheating to get ahead by just denigrating people and not basing your things on work. So the people that rise to the top are basically uh, grifters, are very mediocre people on one level, and sociopathic narcissists it incentivizes sociopathic narcissism where people are very very obsessed about the surface of everything and a writing so ultimately it starts to rift our ability to work together and to see each other and it in the name of love or these weird academic versions of love and charity it completely stops our ability to actually love people instead of us looking at the poor And looking at the downtrodden and having a sense of charity that arises from within to go and help them, there's this entire government apparatus that does it for us that sucks out my resources and gives it to somebody else mechanically. Mm -hmm. And it masks these institutions that are not human Mm -hmm. with these human sounding ideals of like, this is an inclusive corporation. This is a diverse corporation. And on the level of individuals, equity works on the level of one-to-one person going and looking for diverse voices or trying to be more inclusive and and pushing your boundaries. And like, for me, like, okay, I'm going to go and start to actually listen to feminists, even though I've spent years like disagreeing with them. You know, I'm going to try to Mm. do the good thing and expand my repertoire. Instead of me doing that, on a basis of uh, personal prompt, it's enforced upon me. So it's not really genuine diversity. It's not really genuine restitution. And so it's going to cause a lot of resentment. It's based on resentment. There's a number of different psychological properties that doesn't work out once you start to implement this stuff. It sounds really good on the surface, but in effect, in action, it splits us apart. And it causes us as a, as a United States to lose our origin story, to lose our ability to say that we're looking for a more perfect union by focusing on all the imperfections of our history. And then those imperfections are used to further divide us and to stop us from course correcting.
0: Okay. Uh, Just because I know we have finite time here. Let me ask you about some other things. We could keep talking about this, but I do want to circle back you mentioned you had written five novels Mm -hmm. that, did you say self-destruct, I think was the term you used? Yeah,
1: they come, they they break apart.
0: Do you mean like you were done and you weren't happy with it or literally painted yourself into a corner and didn't put it aside unfinished?
1: I painted myself into a fractal. (laughs) <laughs> where the, the story okay. doesn't end. It gets to this place where it just infinitely spirals out into multiplicity okay. of stories. So I had to write this thing over and over again. That would be a whole conversation about metamodernism and postmodernism and mm-hmm. uh, what I'm trying to get, which actually does map onto intellectual currents that do manifest in societal currents, though it's kind of working on a level of abstraction, basically about how do different worldviews come together mm-hmm. and work together. How do you harmonize different worldviews? How do you make a, a union or a symphony out of completely different things? So it does work with uh, with political, and it, it totally works with what Evergreen handed me as a story. How do I take all these mm-hmm. different viewpoints and, and make a cohesive whole? It, basically, I offload that creation of the story to the other person. I do as little narrating as possible. I organize and I disorganize the information in such a way that the audience has to participate in organizing the data themselves, and they become a part of the story. It's basically tricking the reader into becoming the writer, in a way. And that's what the fiction, it took a long time for me to figure Mm -hmm. out how to hold that space and figure out what I was doing in in the way that I was writing things. Are you saying
0: something different from, because so, I read, I wrote a novel in grad school and I I didn't know what I was doing. I knew the plot. Like, yeah. I could see it as a movie, but I didn't know how to, and I read, I don't know if you've read, Stephen King has a book called On Writing. It's very good. Like, like whether you like his, you know, horror yeah. or not, like it's just, yeah. it's a very good book. I would highly recommend. It. And he has a line there. This won't be an exact quote, but something like, remember that every character is the protagonist in his or her mind. Yeah. Yeah. like the, you know I mean no one thinks they're a bit character in somebody else's story yeah and no. that, is, yeah. is is that what you mean or you mean something that's different from that well
1: I can incorporate that into what I mean so if we okay. look at if we try to give the audience of the complete evergreen story the the viewpoint that everybody thinks that they're the hero in this story everybody is the center of the universe in this story mm-hmm. and if you can suspend the judgment of how they're acting and suspend your judgment casting them as the villain or the hero, you can see them as basically operating out or acting out a certain code, basically. They, they have these mm. certain principles that they are taking to the extreme. And everything at, during Evergreen and during 2020 is turned up to 11. So you can really see how the basic assumptions work out. So so yeah, the character itself is just operating in good faith according to their mm-hmm. principles. Mm-hmm. So you you actually suspend judgment of the individual and say that they're basically beholden to their ideals. And which ideals allow individuals to have more mastery Mm -hmm. And more consciousness, more awareness, more respectfulness, more hard work, more good faith, and which completely destroy all those different things and cause them to be rude, in your face, destructive, dismantling, Mm -hmm. not caring about property, not caring about individual rights for the sake of some other ideal. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you do approach everybody as a as a protagonist, you just say, Okay, well, Mm -hmm. then all their good or bad behaviors based on their basic assumptions, which Mm -hmm. might be dehumanizing in a way, but so just to give where I've seen it. So like Charles Dickens, you
0: know, he just written some very famous things, but something that always bothered me about his stuff is he's letting you know these are the good guys and these are the bad guys mm. in my story. Whereas mm. like Larry McMurtry, The Lonesome Doves, I don't know if you've read those novels, but in there, like as the narrator, he's not judging, he's just telling you. This is why this person's doing these things. This is what he's thinking when he's doing them. And you totally get, like, it could be horrific stuff. Yeah. But you get why, oh, yeah, I see why, given his background, that's why this guy's doing this right now. You know what I mean? Like, and the narrator's just letting you know, and then this happened, and then this happened, and it's yeah, sort of, you know, and I'm wondering, like, is that correct? Or I wonder, like, if somebody of the other school of thought would say, well, no. Larry McMurtry is clearly letting you know who the heroes yeah, are. Yeah. the cowboys and the Indians are the savages and da, da, yeah. da, And yeah. you're rooting for them and it's, this is a farce. Like yeah. we, we know they're smuggling it. They're hiding the morality tale.
1: The problem with what well, I'll just call critical social justice or you can call wokeness or whatever mm-hmm. word you want to put. I just recorded a bathroad reading episode before we got on about a, a person Karen Johnson in Washington state who just became the director of the Office of Equity. So Evergreen is being scaled up to the level of the Washington state and this Office of Ex- Equity mm-hmm. is supposedly given oversight for every other agency. So they go in and they check the metrics of the outcomes and then they start to train you in these anti-bias things in order to produce the correct outcomes. It turns out that she taught at Evergreen last year and she gave this weekend course. It's called Leave Your Bias at the Door or something, Leave Your Mm -hmm. uh, Implicit Bias at the Door. And she it's very obvious in uh, indoctrination that everybody has implicit bias. Everybody basically is the villain. Mm -hmm. It projects intentionality. It says that all this stuff that makes you think that you're not racist is a myth what you are is evil. What you are is basically racist. And I am going to teach you to think the right way, to act the right way, and then to force everybody else to think and act the right way too, basically. So to kind of like twist around what we're talking about, narrative interpretation, critical social justice Mm -hmm. comes in and it, it, this is critical theory, critical theory. It's that Mm -hmm. we'll reduce everything to a text. Everything's a text. Everything is a text that is promoting a source of power And we will read into everything our own narrative, which is very simplistic. It is pretty powerful once or twice, but it's, there's so many other kinds of stories going on, but it sees right. everything according to oppressed oppressor. And then the correct you know, plot arc is to flip that stuff over, is right. to cause this equalization of outcomes and stuff. So basically it's a story that is being promoted where everybody is basically it's indoctrination in the sense that everybody's operating according to this very narrow worldview and can only see everything according to this one story. So it's very badly written. It's a terrible right. aesthetically. It kills art, yeah. and you can see right. the right. destruction of our art of of uh, young people going to college. They're they're not taught how to create beautiful things. They're taught how to be activists first and foremost because justice is more important than beauty.
0: I'm glad you you put it that way because I've I've noticed that too. Just in different fields, like this postmodernism, critical yeah. race theory, thing like social justice activism has kind of destroyed like excellence in all these different fields. Yeah. Like putting yeah. aside my own view as the particulars on a given issue, but just in general, like, yeah, the repl- it's swamping it yeah. with all this stuff.
1: Like like stand-up comedy even
0: has oh, yeah. been oh, yeah. messed up and whatever. So yeah. it's... uh The, that, that the
1: humanities are totally screwed, mm-hmm. which is a boon and a bane. In the short term, our official knowledge-creating institutions, let's just say mainstream media, is all completely beholden to this. It's completely captured. And they are... Over and over and over again, every week, a new voice is killed or, or is silenced mm-hmm. or is shot out because they cannot stomach anybody who questions them inside. So they're going and with them are going all the good minds, all those great minds, all those brilliant minds, those flexible minds, those people who are actually funny, who are actually mm-hmm. smart, who can think in more than just one story, who can interpret things according to a variety of supposed, uh, you know, inputs and outputs. They're not going to be silenced for long. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe if they capture everything, they can completely silence us and, and you know, censor us completely, but we're going to go somewhere mm-hmm. and th- that is going to foment a renaissance. It's going to put a lot of pressure, just like what happened in 2020, where everybody was put on pressure and there's that release valve and all it erupted and something terrible right. and completely right. destructive over a longer period of time. The, all that repression is going to lead to a bunch of people meeting and, and being under pressure to, to create something really, really good. that mm-hmm. will be based on mastery. And then that's going to eventually erupt. So that's my hopeful message.
0: Yeah, and what I hope, I think going along with what you just said is that all the lockdown, and so there's lots of people that were just sitting there looking at YouTube videos and yeah. just delving into stuff that, oh yeah, it's, you know, in a perfect world, I would, I would go research, you know, these topics or whatever. Yeah. But now you're locked at home for a year and okay, now I'm going to go ahead and do that. And so, they, they, yeah, I hope you're right. Yeah, they're going to burst out. Yeah. L- let me give you an example of what I mean I don't know if you caught this, but about a half an hour ago, you were, you know, telling me stuff, and you said they were like like trained dogs and Pavlovian, and I actually thought, oh my gosh, if someone wanted to grab this clip from him, he just called all these students dogs. That doesn't look very good. <laughs> and you know, and I'm gonna have to, you know, and I was actually wondering, should I say something to help you <laughs> clarify so you don't get canceled? You, like that's the way now. Oh, like I yeah. can't help but think like that. You know what I mean? And it's, you know
1: what? At this point. If they canceled me, it would backfire. Unfortunately, I'm connected with the, all the outsiders. And we right, actually right. we we all like march around when when somebody gets canceled. We do like this right, cancellation right. dance and start shouting, Look at this guy guy's getting canceled. So uh-huh. they try they don't want to cancel me because that would just that would backfire. They they're smart that's what you enough want. to right, do that. Right, right, yeah. right. But I I mean I'm
0: being tongue in cheek because obviously yeah. I knew I knew what you were saying and everything, yeah. but I'm just saying, like that's how now I've been or like I go to type out some tweets and I'll say. You know, that's not funny enough. Like that could be misinterpreted. <laughs> I'm not it? willing to die on that hill. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> like certain things, I was like, no, if they go after me for that, that's just so stupid. But so let me just, I did want to ask you, you alluded to your, your bathroom robe reading. Yeah. Can you explain like your approach to podcasting and stuff and, you know, how do you get a name for yourself and oh, whatever? Yeah, like, is okay. that something, did you officially say that hmm. could be a gimmick I'll do? Or oh, were you just yeah. in the bathrobe one day and, and did it and then and it worked? Okay. Um. Actually, for can you explain what we're talking about for those who aren't regular viewers of you, just yeah. to know what
1: you mean? Okay, so I run a YouTube channel, and uh, YouTube is just a guy with a webcam and a camera. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sorry, a guy with a camera and a microphone,
0: basically and a good can, microphone to really distinguish yourself.
1: Well, yeah, you can you can upgrade this stuff, you know, to be yeah. better and better. Don't and better. don't
0: use your inbuilt computer one; then you just sound like a chump. But.
1: This is this is exactly this is exactly what I'm talking about. With YouTube, the quality mm. really varies. The, there's mm. the quality of the content, and then there's the quality of the presentation, basically the production values. And you can mm. completely, I could totally sculpt this. Very, you have a lot of very independent creators who are just sculpting these incredibly professional-looking videos. Mm -hmm. And then then talking about whatever, putting whatever ideas they are into this great form. So I am a postmodernist in the sense that I include commentary on my commentary. I give the audience, again, the power to interpret and to misinterpret me and to, to show that I'm playing around, that you are watching somebody producing this stuff. So there's this thing called dankness like a dank meme. Yep. That's a very mm-hmm. low quality thing that actually is, is using very low quality very intentionally. So I don't use my best webcam. I do use my best microphone and I'm very, mm-hmm. uh, I centralize audio because I, that's the most important thing is to get, and I really critique when I misread and I edit everything to get all my stutters out mm-hmm. and to work on my smacks. That's really important but that's kind of invisible. The visible stuff I could do a lot better, but like I have a green screen that's never quite there or a black screen that's kind of going in and out and like my, my exposure. So the bathrobe, I used to do, I used to do funny hats. I would read these really boring, um, you know, inner office memos, like, showing the advancement of social justice throughout an institution. And I dress up like a, an army guy or like Napoleon Bonaparte or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and and be totally serious. But like visually, it's completely off-putting. But then there's a tension. Well, you have to take yourself seriously if you want to be taken seriously. So there's this give and take, give and take. There's this way that I want to be able to approach topics of kind of importance with levity and to mm-hmm. make it human, make all these really high abstract ideals or these really crazy, like the the end of civilization, kind of bring it down a few notches into more relatable terms. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what, one day I just showed up in my bathrobe and I read something. And the bathrobe put me in a certain frame of mind where I was just really relaxed. And then it's just like, you know, this kind of works. Like there's something mm-hmm. aesthetically where my hair's not done. I don't do my hair, but it's not combed. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm kind of groggy and I'm walking through this stuff. My performance is better. It's more relaxed and it's hilarious. I think it's hilarious. Right. Uh, but uh, of course it's not serious. And it actually, in a postmodern sense, it implodes the category of seriousness, which makes people not take me seriously. But at the same time, I'm teasing them on on judging me. I'm teasing Mm -hmm. these people who think that they're going to recreate the better world by actually kind of subtly mocking them, saying, like, listen, I'm going to get up first thing in the morning and completely wreck your argument,
0: like as Mm -hmm. an afterthought, Mm
1: -hmm. right? Like, like right, struggling, right, right. To, uh, struggling to struggling cl- to plug myself into the world. I am still capable <laughs> of completely uh, right. laying out how ridiculous your belief system you're, is. Right? You are
0: kind of like when Neo realizes who he is, and he's fighting the agent with one hand. When he just kind of he's kind of bored and just <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you remember that scene, you know what I mean? Like he's fighting him first, and yeah. then he just kind of turns sideways with one oh, arm. Was just, uh, da just Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so it's just an astounding. Yeah. The last thing I did want to add, like just as a follow up on this, is because I noticed you had James Lindsay on at one point. Yeah, and you were. Politely sort of questioning like the mom jokes on Twitter. Yeah, like, yeah, so for yeah, those yeah. who don't know, James Lindsay, math PhD, very sharp guy, did a yeah. bunch of research, was part of the grievance studies hoax. So he literally had stuff published in peer-reviewed journal articles to show, look, at yeah. I know who these people are, I can publish in their top journal. Yeah. And yet on Twitter, I think he did it in response to a hit piece that said his persona on Twitter is of the variety of your mom. And then he just ran with that. Yeah. And yeah, so he now just, just keep
1: talking. Yeah.
0: And I think he shouldn't do that. Not that he asked my opinion and that it matters what what I think of him. Yeah, yeah. Because I think it is, there's lots of people who don't know who he is. They hear something negative and then he confirms it and they don't give him a second chance. Yes. Whereas I think your bathroom, I could see someone saying to you, Benjamin, you got so much to say. Yeah. What are you doing with these little gimmicks with the bathroom? And I do think it works in your case that it helps on that. And so I don't know if
1: it, it's you really subjective the it, theory of gimmickry. It, it, it's uh what James is doing is deconstructing the public intellectual. It, it's a postmodern mm-hmm. thing where we're, and, right. and we're, we're actually using postmodern against people who are trying to take it seriously and use it to actually destabilize our entire society. Right. Um, so, but, but it's, it's really interesting. Lindsay, Lindsay goes to places where I don't go because I'm always respectful because I don't want to, I don't, I don't have the stomach for combativeness. I don't have that. Mm-hmm. and he doesn't care. so he he gets away with that. And he does get criticism, uh, justified in people's minds that he he's actually doing the cause more harm than good by not adhering to a mm-hmm. uh, certain polite frame of of reference that I try to maintain, even though you're seeing my chest hair and and. Uh, you know, like I'm sipping coffee and, and being groggy on the internet. So, okay. So what you're saying, so what you're saying
0: is, so you're saying <laughs> that um the difference in your mind is what you're doing is not insulting. It's a bit irreverent and silly. Whereas what he's doing is silly, but it also might be rude or something. And, Lin- and
1: that's Lindsay's, maybe- on, Lindsay's a regular contributor on my channel. We kind of do semi-regular things. And well, right, so- I know. So I'm not asking we'll you to we'll throw one under the bus. I'm saying that's yeah, so- one issue of a slight disagreement in tactics. Well, yeah. um, I think that what is he doing that is upsetting people? He's being rude to individuals. He has, you know, 150,000 followers and he'll retweet some idiot woke person with five followers Mm. and completely demolish (laughs) them. Right. And then his whole, all of his cronies come on and descend. So there's this power differential, like he's not punching up, which is what you're supposed Mm -hmm. to do. He's betraying all of these uh, gentlemanly uh, rules Mm -hmm. and standards. Mm -hmm. So is he betraying these other standards that are deeper about honesty, about truth, about reality by being impolite? Well, he's, he's playing with our queasiness, but Mm -hmm. he's still sticking to a a deeper value. So that's, that. it's just, it's an interesting question to see who's put off for him and say, like, don't do that. Don't do that. I don't, Sometimes I cringe at some of the things. I'm like, "Oh poor, oh no, you totally destroyed this poor person. You didn't have to do that, you know." Um, but I, I understand his motives, and I, right. I don't play that game because I don't have the stomach. And I do, you know. I'm a preschool teacher. I'm I'm very empathetic. Mm-hmm. I care a lot. I my heart is is always engaged in my in my behavior and in my content. So I'm I'm very. Uh, it's very easy for me to get very anxious. And, and very take personally, if the mob comes my way, he doesn't have that. He's got like this weird, right. uh, trick. So I adhere to politeness because of my own <laughs> standards of, of being, right? So, mm-hmm. okay. Well, I, we could talk, I'm sure for a lot longer on these
0: various topics, but I know you got to go. And so I appreciate your time. Well, thank Folks, you. Folks, uh, my guest has been Benjamin Boyce and, uh, just really a fan of your channel. And I hope you get some more regular listeners because of this and just Absolutely. keep doing what you're doing. It's great are, stuff.
1: Are people going to see me or are they just going to hear me? Do you do a video this, version? But I do both, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. I'll do Good. the audio so and I, then also... I, I didn't show up in a bathroom, but I, I guess I should have, huh?
0: You could have and I would have, but yeah, I, I was wondering if you you'd probably think, no, this guy's going to think, why is he doing I this? Had yeah. a, I
1: had a one parting anecdote. I had somebody show up in a bath, like i show up in bathrobes right i, I interviewed an only fan star who makes like a hundred thousand dollars a month um very very sharp person but mm-hmm. she showed it. she was just in a bath with a glass of wine you know i didn't see her body but she was naked in a tub. <laughs> like i didn't even i didn't say anything you just roll with it mm-hmm. you're like okay you just went with it yeah you just played the straight man just, just play yeah. the straight just go through so you know if you if you're ever confronted by that uh, if somebody's trying to troll you in that, just don't don't play into it. Just like, okay. Let's yeah, just,
0: just, yeah just don't bat an eye, right? Just yeah. call their bluff. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm glad to, you warned me. I would, Yeah, I probably would be taken aback if that were to happen. But <laughs> most of the economists who I interviewed wouldn't even consider doing that. So it's probably better for everybody.
1: <laughs> well, maybe that's the problem with the economics. Uh, you know, all these laissez-faire things, they have invisible hand. Oh, look, what about the nude <laughs> hand, right? What about that? <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs>
0: Exactly. This, Yeah, I'll have to submit an article on this stuff. <laughs> I'll talk to James and he'll give me some advice on how to get published on that topic. <laughs> well, folks, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 190 for the links. I'll, I'll link to all of Benjamin's stuff. So again, Benjamin, in all seriousness, thank you for what you're doing and it's really important in these times.
1: Thanks you so much for having me on, Bob. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.